Welcome to The Meeting Room, a place to gather and discuss all things relating to meat safety, quality, and production. This past week, 640,000 cattle and 2.3 million hogs were harvested in the United States. This equaled 522 million pounds of beef and 487 million pounds of pork being produced. In meat industry news, over 59,000 pounds of frozen, raw, breaded, and pre-cooked chicken products have been recalled from Serenade Foods due to possible salmonella contamination. JBS is purchasing Australia's second-largest salmon producer, Huan Aquaculture Group Limited, for $315 million. The purchase should be finished by the end of 2021. Tyson Foods announced that it is requiring all of its U.S. employees to be vaccinated for COVID-19. All employees are required to be vaccinated by November 1st, and Tyson Foods employs nearly 120,000 people within the United States. Welcome to the meeting room. My name is Brianna Boosman, and I'm excited to have you join me this week. All around the world, meat is a staple in the diet. In fact, in most places, it's the center of the diet, and it's the center of the plate, the part of the plate that you really build the meal around. And if you think about it, When you're planning a meal, where do you start? Typically, it starts with a choice of protein. Steak, chicken, ribs, and then the sides follow to complement that protein. Potatoes, salad, beans. Not often is the meal decided because someone wants coleslaw, so they decide to have a hamburger with it. Don't get me wrong, it does happen. In fact, this past week, My meals were chosen because I had a ripe avocado in my fridge, and so all my groceries and all my meals were planned around me being able to make guacamole. But this isn't the common case. Most of the time, we really start with that protein and build our meals around it. And meat can come in many different forms. Red meats, such as beef, pork, lamb, and veal, to poultry products, to seafood, to processed meats, or even game products like deer, elk, or moose, all can be a huge part of the diet. And all of these things are commonly incorporated in the diet, but the frequency and the normality of each product can really vary uh, by where you are in the world or even just around the country, from one state to the next, or even just town to town, community to community, neighborhood to neighborhood, we can see huge changes in the diet. For example, when I was in school in Idaho, I ate a lot of elk jerky and summer sausage, something I had never had before, but it was very common in that area. Another example is here in Lincoln, some grocery stores carry high amounts of the internal meats or our organ meats, tongues, hearts, livers, kidneys, things that maybe not everybody consumes, but groups of people in specific neighborhoods throughout the city incorporate those in high levels in their diet. So this week we're going to talk about some of the different meat products and their popularity around the world. So first up we're going to start where I grew up, southeastern South Dakota. Now, I know South Dakota can seem like a pretty simple place, but in our corner of the state, we are known for Chislik. 
And chislic is basically just cubed lamb or mutton that is grilled or fried and then eaten topped with garlic salt and served alongside saltine crackers. And oftentimes this is something that you'll see at fairs or festivals and it will be served on small skewer sticks and sold for anywhere from 10 to 12 to 14 dollars for a dozen of those sticks. And when I say that, they're only about five to six inch long sticks, have five pieces, bite-sized pieces of this meat on them. So you're really not getting a whole lot of meat. And it, to me, is just absolutely unbelievable what people are willing to pay for lamb, a product that oftentimes in the U.S. is not very popular. Less than 50% of the U.S. population has ever tried lamb. And here at a county fair, you can go and people are paying a ton for it. And that isn't said in judgment. Chislik is one of my favorite foods. Um, Typically, when my family would get lambs butchered, we would get the whole thing cut into chislik. And even at the county fair, it's something that I buy because I really like it. But it is just crazy to me that, you know, it isn't a fancy rack of lamb or lamb leg or Uh, something that's supposed to be a high value cut necessarily, but it's something just very simple um, and it's a great food and I'll be eating it next week at our home county fair Um, and I'm really looking forward to that. You can also find chislic on the menu at a lot of different bar and grills as an appetizer and most of the time this will either be lamb or it will be beef chislic. And lamb is the original dish. If it says beef chislic, it's basically the same thing as like steak tips um, or beef tips. And what's interesting with chislic is that it is our state food or South Dakota state nosh is their term for it. But there's people in South Dakota that have never heard of it. I had friends in college who were from the west side of the state and they had never heard of it and it's one of our state dishes. So up next, we are going to jump across the ocean to China. And China is the number one consumer of pork products, but they consume all different kinds of meat. And when I say that, I don't just mean um, different species, so beef, pork, lamb, poultry products, but also different types in terms of the cuts. And so they consume a lot of those organ meats. So here in the United States, we prefer the middle meats, they're called. So that's what's coming from along the loin. Specifically, when we think about beef, we're thinking of the rib, the loin, where you're getting ribeye steaks, New York strips, fillets. But a large part of that is because we can buy that meat in advance. We can plan out our meals. We can refrigerate it or freeze it until we need it. And then we can cook it properly. We have the ability to throw it on the grill or use a slow cooker. In China, and this very much depends on the area, it's not like this everywhere, but a lot of the meat there is still purchased in a wet meat market, which basically means that overnight animals are harvested and throughout the day the carcasses are hung and people come and they buy the meat that they need for that day. It's cut right there in front of them. They wrap it up, they take it home, and they cook it. And when I was able to go to China a few years ago, 
we went to one of these wet meat markets and it reminded me a lot of a basement of a parking garage. Just really dark, cool um, cement floors and walls. And as the day went on, the price of the different products dropped because they do know that it's a food safety concern and it's a quality concern the longer that that product sits out. But when they're really going day to day, um, and with those concerns, a lot of times the meat is uh, cooked in a different manner than here in the United States. So boiling, stir frying, stewing, poaching, it isn't just thrown on the grill out on your patio. Um, that is not a common occurrence by any means. And so already just a different um, thought to the diet based on cooking methods um, and their ability to actually use the product that they buy. Additionally, they don't just consume what we commonly think of as meat. So um, oftentimes we think of those steaks, roast chops, but their organ meats, skin, fat, blood, all of those things can be incorporated in the diet. And one of the great things about this is that there's really a way to capture value for all of those products. When I do workshops here with students, we do some different cut ID um, and talk about some of our favorite cuts. And I always like to throw in pictures of livers or kidneys or hearts and talk about just because it's not something that we maybe consume frequently in the diet doesn't mean that there isn't value for it. And so those things are very popular in different parts of the country and in different parts of the world. Like I said, even here in Lincoln, grocery stores oftentimes carry those things because there is a high ethnic population here in Lincoln that likes to incorporate those foods into their diets. And so um, though they're not eaten here in the United States that often, there is opportunity to export those products and to be able to gain value from them. A few of the common Asian dishes that they are pretty well known for in that area include chicken paws and Peking duck. On the last episode, I mentioned that according to the USA Poultry and Egg Export Council, over 105,000 metric tons of chicken paws or chicken feet have been exported from the U.S. to China this year. That totals nearly $254 million dollars. And Meeting Place reported that chicken paws are worth about $1.10 a pound in China, and the U.S. supplies nearly 45% of that market. So again, not something that we commonly eat here, but there's still a market and there's still value in that product. So chicken paws can be eaten cold, they can be put into soups or hot meals, or they're served as a snack alongside of alcohol. So here in the U.S., in a lot of bars, you'll see popcorn or pretzels, but in China, you may see chicken feet. And apparently, they're also very good for you. I don't necessarily know all of the nutritional value, um, but maybe there's something there, and maybe that's something we need to try. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not going to be the first to sign up, but I think that there would be worse things to try at least. So the second regional dish is Peking duck, which is a roasted duck. And oftentimes this dish is known for its crisp skin and is served very thinly sliced. They oftentimes serve it at the table and is seen as a delicacy. 
So I had mentioned that a few years ago I got to go to China, and it was following my junior year of college. I was able to go on a trip uh, with the College of Ag and Biological Sciences at South Dakota State, and on this trip we toured some different production facilities. We toured a John Deere factory, um, and then did all the touristy stuff. So like the Terracotta Warriors, the Great Wall, went to the meat market. And I don't think that we ate chicken paws. We did eat Peking duck, and it was very, very good. A lot of the other things, though, that I mentioned, I don't think we ate. But I'm going to be totally honest, I, I really have no idea. I may have tried a lot of things that I never thought I would have, but I just I didn't even know what it was that we were eating. But one of the interesting things that I ate in China um, was not a typical Chinese food. Uh, it was at a world food convention that we were able to go to one day. And there was a booth there from Australia, and we got to try kangaroo. So that's probably the weirdest meat that I have ever eaten, um, or weirdest food, I should say. The other things, like I said, I may have, I may have eaten livers or tongues or things like that and didn't know, but I'm going to just pretend that the only thing on that list that I tried was the Peking duck. So up next, we're going to jump over to Europe and specifically France. So here we see a common consumption of a huge U.S. trend. So this past year, it seemed like every time I would open up Instagram or some of the other social media accounts, I would see pictures of charcuterie boards. They took over, uh, took over by storm, and people still love them. And charcuterie is a common dish in many European countries, and it has been so for centuries. So if you're not familiar with it, basically it is a platter with dried meats and with cheeses. Typically in my household growing up, we ate a lot of this, but we just called it a meat and cheese tray. This year at Christmas, one of my cousins told me that charcuterie boards are to be served with wine and meat and cheese trays are to be served with Mountain Dew. And I thought that was pretty good. And something that, you know, we've eaten for a long time, uh, but maybe not as intense or as sophisticated as what are often seen when we think of actually charcuterie boards. But anyway, they were first utilized as a method to serve foods with longer shelf life. So typically the meat that is served, it's not a freshly cooked product. It's not like it's pieces of steak or ground beef or fresh cooked chicken. It's dried cured meats, so salami, salumi, prosciutto, as well as a variety of cheeses. And oftentimes these are paired with wines. Uh, these aren't always seen necessarily as a classy item. They certainly did not start off as um, something to show class or sophistication by any means, uh, but they really have become a trend here in the United States, but they are a very common, just everyday part of the diet in other countries. Continuing on in Europe, we're now going to jump over to Scotland, where there is a dish that I have never tried, nor do I ever wish to, and it is called haggis. Haggis is made of sheep liver, kidney, and lungs. These things are boiled, chopped, and then combined with ingredients like oatmeal or other grains, 
onions, seasonings, and then further cooked inside of a sheep's stomach. So maybe that sounds really good to you. Doesn't sound very good to me. Uh, When I was reading up on it, they described it as a pudding, (laughs) which when I think of pudding, I think of those snack cups that are like the different kinds of chocolate swirled together, vanilla or butterscotch, not sheep lungs. That just, oh man, I... I shouldn't knock it till I try it, but really something I think that would be out of my range. But in the United States, real haggis is not actually legally technically able to be made. Um, In the U.S., the USDA has deemed that lungs from livestock are not suitable for food. So you actually can't buy sheep lungs in the United States. I'm not sure if you can get them. If you get your lamb like custom harvested, if you'd be able to do that under custom exempt. But technically, you are not supposed to consume lamb lungs. And the reason for that is they're just a higher risk of foodborne illness. A lot of times if there is any sickness or disease in that animal, um, it could be found in that respiratory tract. And so they are removed. But the recipe that I found online called for one heart one lamb liver, one set of lungs, minced lamb fat, which I also need to add, the reason that so many people, specifically in the United States, we said not many have had lamb, but the reason so many people don't like it is because lamb fat doesn't taste very good. It often gets a really rancid flavor, can give it a really bad, just off taste. And so adding in minced lamb fat, I think would be a big big flavor issue. But then it's steel cut oatmeal, one onion, salt and pepper, and then a sheep's stomach. So those are the ingredients. Seems pretty simple. But yeah, so along with the recipe, it was recommended that you serve it with whiskey, which that actually makes sense to me. Of all all the things with this meal, serving it with whiskey, I think is, is... the most logical move there. So that's something if you're ever in Scotland, give it a try. If you have had it, let me know. Maybe I just need to be more positive about it and give it a shot before I I say it's not something that I would want to try. But now coming back to the United States, we'll talk about one more regional item that was specific to Idaho or the Pacific Northwest. So I mentioned earlier, um, I lived in Idaho for About two years, I was out there for grad school, and we ate a lot of game meat. That was very popular out there. But another popular dish in Idaho are finger steaks. And according to the Idaho Beef Council's webpage, finger steaks are crunchy, breaded or battered fried strips of whole beef served with a tangy sauce. And very similar to chislic, they are just a very regional food item served at a lot of bars and grills. A lot of like local restaurants carry these. A lot of families have family recipes for these. And they were really good. Basically, they're just breaded and deep fried steak tips. And from my experience, they're very popular. And it seemed like everybody in every restaurant had kind of an a little bit different approach to making them and all thought that theirs were the best. Like it was kind of a um, a little bit of a 
in-state rivalry for who had the best uh, finger stakes. And to me, I just think it's really interesting to go different places and to experience the local diets. So even here in Nebraska, it seems kind of silly, but runs up. Runza was something that was totally new to me when I came here. I tried it during my interview. Um, At the time, I was really nervous, so I didn't really taste it. But it's something that people grow up with, and it becomes a big part of their diet and just a different part of the state or a different part of the country or a different part of the world have no idea that that's something that would even be consumed. Like I said, with Chislik in South Dakota... People just on the other side of the state had never even heard about it before, but it was something that I consumed frequently growing up. And so just because there's things also that we may not consume, and when I say that I mean different parts of the animal or different products that come from the animal, doesn't mean that there isn't value there. So we can use them to make, um, you know, or use them in byproduct production or they can be exported to different countries that can actually use them and incorporate them in the diet. And so maybe this sparked an interest into traveling to be able to try some of these items, going somewhere and experiencing a different diet, a different protein that they put on the center of their plate. But maybe it also makes you just happy to be at home and to be able to enjoy the foods that you grew up with Um, or that are common in your diet and not have to branch out and try something that maybe just seems a little bit different. But either way, thank you for taking the time to join me today in the meeting room, and I look forward to visiting with you again next time.